Well, again, we're in Hebrews chapter 1. We're going to read again the first four verses as we've been journeying through these four verses this Advent season, thinking about the supremacy of God's Son. Starting in verse 1, the author of Hebrews says, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature, and He upholds the universe by the word of His power. After making purification for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to the angels as the name He has inherited is more excellent than theirs. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the Word of our God remains forever and ever. Well, at the beginning of this Advent season, Pastor Don and myself released an Advent devotional to you that will end tomorrow with Christmas Day, speaking to many different scriptural texts that declare to us a reason in which Christ came. Reasons in which Christ came. And and it wasn't that long ago, actually last week, that one particular church member asked me, out of all 25 of those devotionals, which one do you think is most important? And I almost felt like that was a gotcha question. Because of course my answer is, well, all Scripture is important, and all the reasons in which Christ came are important to the believer. And he goes, well, I know all those answers, but tell me, why do you think Christ came? If you had to boil it down to the singular reason in which Christ came, what would you say? And my mind went first to to glorify the Father. Jesus said Himself, they are in the upper room, that He has come to glorify the Father. And I think that would probably be correct. I could argue it from the Scriptures that that would be correct, but my answer at the time was, I think that the reason in which Christ came was to be the purification for sins. That is how He glorifies the Father, isn't it? That He obeys the law perfectly. That though He is perfect and blameless according to the law, He dies a sinner's death on our behalf so that we might be accounted the righteousness of God, sons and daughters of the Father that is in heaven. The reason in which Jesus says, I have come to glorify the Father is because He's executing the mission of God, which is to save sinners who believe. As the author of Hebrews begins to unpack for us the Son and the supremacy of God's Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, He tells us many things that we've already examined here in these first four verses. He tells us first that it is through the Son that God has finally spoken. And when I say finally spoken, it's not that He has not spoken to us before. No, the text tells us that He has spoken to our fathers by the prophets. What I mean when I say that He's finally spoken is that climatically, completely, fully, He has spoken to us by His Son. And it is the Son who is God. God 
The Son is the second person of the Trinity. And so, as we've confessed through this Advent season, the Nicene Creed, as we even sung it with, O come all ye faithful, we say about the Son that He is God of God, light of light, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were, what? Made. Who for us and for our salvation came down from heaven, born of the Virgin Mary, taking upon Himself flesh, putting Himself under the law. And so when we think about the first Advent season, we think about Christmas, and we think about Christmas Eve, and we think about the baby lying in the manger, we don't see just some ordinary baby, do we? No, we see God in the flesh. The way in which the author of Hebrews says is that He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of His nature. When we see the Son, we see the Father. Isn't that what we said last week? When we were thinking about this very phrase, the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of His nature, we said that when we see Christ, we see the Father. And that's exactly what Jesus says. Again, in the upper room, It's one of the disciples that says, Jesus, show us the Father. And Jesus says, if you've seen me, you have seen the Father. And so we think about the the majesty and the glory of God that is revealed to us in the Son. Because He is God. Fully God, truly God, and also fully and truly man. The God-man. But then the author of Hebrews tells us that He is the one that is created all things, doesn't it? He says that He is the heir of all things. And why is He the heir of all things? It's because He has created the world. And so we've already said this Advent season that Jesus, the Son, has always existed. If you remember the illustration that I gave, I said that there was a time in which my mother and father were not mother and father. They were just Mary and Ernie. There was a time in which I did not exist. There was a time that they were married and yet they were not mom and dad. It's only when they had a son that they became mother and father. In the same way, the father has always been the father. The son has always been the son. He has been eternally begotten by the father. And so at creation, as the world is being spoken into existence, it's a singular voice. But it's the Father, Son, and Spirit speaking. And not only has He created all things, but He sustains it by the power of His mouth. The way that the author of Hebrews says here is He upholds the universe by the word of His power. Not only is He the Creator, but He's also the Sustainer of all things in this life. He is active within this world that He has created. And if that wasn't magnificent enough, if that doesn't doesn't cause you to worship already, now the author of Hebrews tells us the greatest work of the Son is that He makes purification for sins. That's there in verse 3 for us, and that's what we're going to focus on this morning. 
after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Yes, the Son is the creator and sustainer, but his greatest work is that he is the redeemer. And he says so himself. If you would keep your finger in your Bible at Hebrews chapter 1 and just flip over back to Matthew's Gospel chapter 9. Matthew chapter 9. I'd invite you to turn there. I'm going to read for us the first eight verses of Matthew chapter 9. It's a well-known scene in the Gospel of Jesus healing a paralytic man. And if you think anything about the the healing of the paralytic man, much like all of Jesus' miracles, you have before you a demonstration of the Creator sustaining the world. Just as we said, and this is in chapter 8 of Matthew chapter 9, Jesus calming the storm. We said the same voice in which the waves hear, they are on the boat with the disciples. As the voice says, be still, and they are still, they obey because... They're hearing the same words that they heard when they were created, right? Just in the same way, this paralytic body has been created, knit together in the womb by the Lord. And the reason in which the Lord Jesus can say, legs work again, is because they hear the voice of their Creator and they respond, they obey And so here it is that Jesus heals the paralytic man. He's displaying these things, both creator and sustainer. It says in verse 1, And getting into a boat, he crossed over and came to his own city. And behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, This man is blaspheming. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? For which one is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He then said to the paralytic, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and went home. When the crowd saw it, they were afraid, and they glorified God, who had given them, or given such authority to men." Well, think about what's being displayed here as we think about this scene with the Lord Jesus and the paralytic. We've already said he's an acting creator and sustainer, right? But Jesus, knowing the hardness of the religious establishment's hearts, he goes, which one is easier for me to tell this man to rise up and walk, take his bed and go home? Or is it more difficult for me to forgive sins. You know, of course, nothing is too difficult for our God, but Jesus is making, making clear here something. It would be easier for you to speak the world into existence than to forgive sins. Jesus is showing us that He has the authority to forgive sins. He has the authority to sustain the world, yes, because He's created it, but He has the authority to forgive sins because He is the one that has been offended against. All sin is disobedience, an offense to a holy God. We know that. 
All sin is a want to or conformity unto, a transgression against the law of God. And what that means, that catechism answer means is that sin, being cosmic treason against the holy God, is either striking out against Him or falling short of what He requires. And so the, the, the gospel message first starts with knowing yourself. And the good news is you are far worse than you could ever imagine. I know that's not good news, is it? It's good news when you think about it in the gospel, in light of the gospel, but you think about this. How many times have you struck out against the law of God? And your mind should be spinning like an old Rolodex. I've, I've committed this sin. I've struck out against God in this way. I, I've done this. I've done that. You should be just running through the gambit of sins that you've committed even this morning. It's many, isn't it? It's many. And then at the same time, we ask ourselves, well, how often do I fall short of what God has required of me to be as a Christian, as a father, as a husband, as a mother, as a wife, as a friend, as a church member? as a community leader, as a community member. And it's always. It's always. And that might seem a little unfair to you to say something along those lines, but let me remind you what the law summarized by Jesus is. The law summarized by Jesus is that you must love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and you must love your neighbor as yourself. Has anyone ever done that perfectly in this room? No. We always fall short. We're guilty of what we call sins of omission and commission. We are guilty of those things that we have done and left undone. And we are guilty of those things that we have not done that we ought to have done. We have not loved the Lord the way that we are expected to and called to as Christians. We are not loving towards our neighbor as ourself and as we look upon sin we realize that we are the very opposite of this word of purification here within our text we are defiled we are vile we are helpless we are guilty we are sinners we are sinners we have committed sins many countless sins and because of our sins we are separated from God and have become an object of his wrath and condemnation and and we need someone else we need someone outside of ourselves to restore us to a right standing with God and knowing that knowing that the author of Hebrews now tells us that this God who is holy this God who is majestic, this God who is righteous, this God who is good and just, this God now takes on flesh in the person of His Son, the Creator of the world, takes on the flesh of human nature also that He might show that He has the authority to forgive sins because He is the one that we have sinned against. You know, when we think about sin, we often think about those who we have sinned against as, as in, I have sinned against my wife, or I have sinned against my children, or I have sinned against you, I have sinned against my neighbor. 
But ultimately, beloved, what we need to understand about sin is that ultimately we have sinned against God. That's why I often call it cosmic treason. And so He is the one that has the authority to forgive sins. I was reading a commentator this week, and he, and he gave a, a pretty helpful illustration, I think. He, he brought up his two children as they were growing up. And this makes sense, because I have children who are in the early stages of growing up, and they sin against each other a lot. They sin against each other a lot. And, and he says, what sense would it make for me as the father, if my son sinned against my daughter, for me to go up to my son and say, son, you're forgiven for sinning against your sister. Is, is, are you the one that has been sinned against, or is she the one that has been sinned against? Well, of course she is. If Brooks sinned against Anna Kate, it would do nothing for me to walk up to Brooks and say, Brooks, your sin's forgiven. Go about your day. No, what is required is for Brooks to go now to his sister to ask for forgiveness for the sin that he has committed against her because he has offended her. And ultimately, offending her, he has offended God as well. And so you think about the authority to forgive sins is simply because he is God. And the reason in which we need purification for sins in the sight of God is because ultimately our sins are sins, iniquities, transgressions, trespasses against Him. And therefore, the reason in which the Son of God came is to be the purification for sins or to be the purifier for sins, making purification. Now, of course, that... That word there, purification, should draw your mind back to the Old Testament. The author of Hebrews does that numerous times throughout his letter. He wants to draw your mind back to the Old Testament. He wants to draw your mind back to the Old Testament sacrificial system. He wants to draw your mind back to the, the work of the high priest in the Old Testament there in the temple as he goes into the holiest of holy places and he sprinkles the blood of the sacrifice upon the mercy seat of the holiest of holy places showing us that there is purification for sin through the sacrificial blood in the presence of the Father. And what the author of Hebrews says is that ultimately, finally, completely, totally, climatically, the Son has come to do that very thing. Just as the blood sprinkled of the lamb or the bull in the Old Testament to show a purification for sins, now Jesus has come and He has really, truly, literally cleansed us from all of our sins. He has been the propitiation, the Apostle Paul writes, for our sins. Meaning that He has satisfied the righteous indignation, the justice of God. And He is the only one that could do this. The Son is the only one who could do this. And why is that? Well, our catechisms tell us exactly why that is the case. If you uh, grab those hymn books, I, I did this a number of weeks ago, but one of my favorite aspects about these hymn books is all these catechism questions and confessions and 
and, and statements are, are made here in the back of our hymn books. But if you look on page 943, 943, why could the purifier of sin not be just any old man? Why did the Son have to be God to forgive sins, to satisfy the wrath of God? And it's right there for us in question 38. On page 943, why was it requisite that the mediator, or Christ, the Son, should be God? It says it was a requisite that the mediator should be God, that he might sustain and keep the human nature from sinking under the infinite wrath of God and the power of death, giving worth and efficacy to his sufferings, obedience, and intercession and to satisfy God's justice, procure His favor, purchase a peculiar people, give His Spirit to them, conquer all their enemies, and bring them to everlasting salvation. The reason, I want to draw out three words from that. The reason in which our mediator, the, the purifier of sins, had to be God is so that one, His ministry, His life and death would have worth would have worth. Remember, our sins are cosmic treason against God, a holy God. Only He has the authority to forgive sins because He is ultimately the one who is offended by sin. And and therefore, this holy and righteous God had to give worth to our salvation. It means simply that only a holy and righteous God could lay down His life. You know, when we think about sin and we think about it being cosmic treason, we think about this spiritual realm that we don't fully understand. This supernatural warfare that we don't fully understand. And we entrust our salvation to our God because His ways are not our ways and His understanding is not our understanding and What we would count as worthy is not worthy in the presence of an Almighty God. And therefore, we need God who knows the worth of our sin, knows the penalty of our sin, and knows the ransom debt that is owed to save us from our sins. But it also is, that word is efficacy. His life, His ministry, His death, His resurrection, it's all efficient, we might say. It all works. And why does it work? Because only God can operate in this spiritual realm. Only God could could restore a people to Himself. Only God could cleanse the sins of all who believe by His precious blood. You see, the Old Testament sacrificial system, it it happened day by day by day by day, both morning and evening in the temple. It's always burning the sacrifice. But when Jesus lays down His life, it works and it is finished. The blood of Jesus Christ is effective for the salvation of all who will believe. And it satisfies that third word in that answer satisfaction 
It satisfies God's justice. You see, the, the debt that we owe to our God who has created us, who sustains us, who is holy, 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 the debt is insurmountable if left in and of ourselves. So we need one who is infinitely better, infinitely more holy, infinitely more righteous, infinitely more worthy than we are. And so stands in our place, our mediator, the Lord Jesus Christ, the very Son of God, who now, by the shedding of His blood, forgives sins. And you look at the the wonderful statement that's written there. It's not that after making purification for a sin, or even the sin, is it, back in Hebrews chapter 1. No, it's sins. It's sins. I cannot say or even read that verse without thinking of that great hymn of the faith that we love so well. It is well. And you remember that verse, my sin. Oh, the bliss of this wondrous thought. My sin, not in part, but the what? Whole. Has been nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Oh, my soul. All of my sin, past, present, and future, has been nailed to the cross of Calvary placed upon the sacrificial Lamb of God, the very Son of God, the man, Jesus Christ, and it's now been atoned for. My life has now been purified in Him. All of my sins have been covered in the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And immediately, immediately that should take away any sense, any sense that your sin if you come in faith to the Lord Jesus Christ, keeps you apart from Him. You know, one of the things that I think that maybe I struggle with the most, and I know that many people who struggle with this very thing, is the assurance of salvation. If you've never struggled with the assurance of salvation, praise the Lord for it, because those who do, it is, it's deep and it's heavy. To think why a holy God would, would be mindful of me, a sinner, a small creature. Why a holy God would give up His only begotten Son for me. Why would He care about me this much? Why would He go through these kind of efforts to save me? And I know the Gospel, right? I know that it's because out of His mere good love for me, He counted me worthy to give me the gift of the Son, to give me Himself. But then the accuser, the devil himself, begins to whisper in your ear, doesn't he, in those moments of remembering the Gospel. And he goes, but you remember that sin that you committed yesterday? You, you remember that sin that you committed 10 years ago? You remember that sin that you committed 20 years ago? You remember how you're, you're not the husband that you ought to be? You're not the father that you ought to be? Do you think that God's... God's Son and His righteousness and His sacrifice is really sufficient for a sinner like you? And you think, I just don't know. Beloved, this text right here helps us remember. Matt, this text right here helps you remember that it's not just the little sins that you've committed. It's all sin. It's not just a few iniquities that you've committed. No, it's every iniquity. 
And to make the gospel even more beautiful, it's every, it's every sin that you will commit. You say, well, Matt, I, I just haven't been walking closely with Jesus as I ought to be. And, and I just don't know if He can look upon me. Beloved, this is the day that you walk with Jesus because His love for you has not failed. And His love for you has not ceased. All of your sins, past, present, and future, have been cleansed, have been purified by the blood of Jesus Christ. This God-man, He has laid down His life for the purification of sins. And very quickly, I want to tell you what these or what this purification of sins brings. It brings about three things. And I'm using a commentator to, you, to, to expand on these three things very briefly. He says the purification of sins brings about the forgiveness of sins, the justing, justifying or the justification of the sinner, and accessibility to the holy God. The forgiveness of sins, the justification of the sinner, and the accessibility to the holy God. If you just flip over just a few pages in your Bible and go to Galatians chapter 4, a great Christmas text coming from Paul's letter to the church at Galatia. Galatians 4, starting in verse 4, reading through verse 7. But when the fullness of time had come, now growing up in the Pentecostal church, we would have said, just at the right time. Okay, at exactly the right time, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that they might receive, or we might receive, the adoptions as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father, so that you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Notice, notice what Paul is saying, that there is a forgiveness of sins, redeem, to redeem those who are under the law. The law, remember, counts us guilty, vile, and helpless. But because of our Redeemer, Christ Jesus, who was sent at exactly the right time, born of a woman, born under the law, or meaning born as a man, because of His work, because of His active and passive obedience, because He obeyed the law perfectly, and because He died a sinner's death, we are now adopted as sons, justified, counted as righteous, brought into the family. And we also have, ex we also have access to this God. Verse 7, he says, So you're no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. We are sons and daughters. Sons and daughters always have access to their fathers. And just as Brooks and Anna Kate and Eliza can burst in, no matter what I'm doing, and get my full attention, the Father in Heaven says, because of Christ, the Mediator, because of my Son, you also have that same access through prayer. You have accessibility to the Holy God. That's the Gospel, beloved, and that's the Gospel that we we remember this Advent season. That Christ has come to do this very thing. That He has come to make purification for sins. And on this Advent season, on this Christmas Eve morning, 
Let us not forget that after He made purification for sins, He sat down. He sat down. What is the point in the author of Hebrews saying that at the very end of verse 3, that He sits down at the right hand of the majesty on high? It's a demonstration, an illustration of what Jesus cries out on the cross of Calvary. It is finished. Our sins have now been atoned for. It's interesting to me that, that the language in which Moses uses in Genesis 1 and 2 to talk about Sabbath rest. Sabbath rest in which God takes as He creates the world on that seventh day. It's as if He says He sits back and admires what is His. In the same way, Jesus sits at the place of honor at the right hand of the Father and He admires what is His. And because of the Gospel, because you have been purified by sins, all of you who believe, because you have been purified of your sins by the precious blood of the Christ. As God looks upon what is His, He looks at you and He says, He is mine, she is mine, and I am theirs. What a great Christmas message. We can, we can think about this, this Lord's Day that the promises of God's Word find their yes and amen in Jesus. And what are the promises of God's Word? That He will be our God and we will be His people forever. May we bask in that Gospel this day for the Christ came to be the purification of sin. Let me pray and then we'll sing together. Father in Heaven, we do thank You for our Lord and Savior Jesus and we thank You that He has purified us from our sins, that He has, through His active and passive obedience, He has counted the cost, and for the joy set before Him, He took on flesh, put Himself under the law, obeyed that law perfectly, and yet died a sinner's death so that we might have life everlasting. And so, Father, we do pray that we would see Him clearly on this Lord's Day, on this Sabbath day, we would rest in our salvation that is secured for us in Christ, that we would be assured of that salvation, that we would find the joy of our salvation this day for all of our sins have been atoned for. And so, Lord, we pray that we would worship You in the splendor of holiness this day and in the days to come all the way till we reach glory. For You are worthy of our worship. In Christ's name we pray these things. Amen.